You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome back to the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and this week, William is off. William is out in the world doing wonderful things. We have a very special guest, Jimmy Destry, who is the keyboard player, the original keyboard player for the band Blondie. And we met up, we were in the WNC studios, to talk about how iTunes and Spotify and digital distribution has changed things for him as an artist. We talked a little bit about his path from Blondie to where he is today. We talked about what it's like using digital music now. And we talked a little bit about uh, some of his experiences because he went to high school with Jimmy Iovine and Steve Jobs' impressions that he got from Jimmy going across there. So I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll sit back and listen. This is going to be a fun one. Welcome to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is Jimmy Destry. Hi, Victor. Jimmy, tell tell my listeners a little bit about your background. I was a boy from Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I happened to be at the right place at the right time because uh, when uh, the whole art scene started there, New York was pretty much peeling and uh, going down the tubes. It's when Jerry Ford said, and not many people will uh, remember this, maybe they will, because uh, it is a podcast and you reach everybody. Uh, Jerry Ford said to New York, drop dead. New York was broke. It was the time of uh, Kojak and, you know, French connection and the seedy subways and everything was wrong. If you could imagine New York at that time, you would have to imagine those smoking vents deep on the water where he said, no life can live. And sure enough, life couldn't live there. But because the New York was so uh, poor, uh, the Ramones and Talking Heads and, and Television and Blondie and some other bands were all renting lofts in the Bowery now where you couldn't get a building for less than $4 million, and we were getting lofts for $300 a month. So uh, Chris sold weed, and I you know, <laughs> worked in a hospital. Clem worked at the post office, and we all pulled our money together, and we lived in this loft. And um, in the early days, we were vying for nights at CBGB's. I mean, we played Mothers in Max's Kansas City, and we just kept playing. Uh, Hilly at CBGB's was a little rough with us because, you know, I have television and, and I have the Ramones and you know, they draw a crowd. And sure enough, the only people who were coming to hear us were other bands. So, um, and, and the band you were in was Blondie, just yeah, to make sure yeah, you said it. it was Blondie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, people think it's Def Leppard or something. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for reminding everyone. Uh, and Blondie, uh, was considered a joke. We were considered like, you know, pretty girl with a bunch of musicians and this isn't artistic like television, you know, and it's not deep like talking heads and it's just out, not out and out crazy like the Ramones and she's no Patti Smith and everything. And then um, one guy thought differently and that was the guy I was with yesterday, Craig Leon. He and his friend Richard Goddard came to see us live and they were blown away by the songs. You know, they could hear through the bad sound and everything else at CB's. And they heard a couple of songs that he said, we should bring them in the studio. And of course, they looked at Debbie and they went, this is a gamble, but it's worth it. 
you know, because she was the first uh, trailblazing woman in a band beside Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac. And, but Debbie was right out front. And it's the reason why we called the band Blondie, you know, to get that recognition because we were songwriters, you know, and we didn't mind everybody addressing her as Blondie. Hey, Blondie, you know, of course she's got Blondie. Yeah, she's the lead singer. So uh, from there, we did a record with Richard and Craig called Ex Offender, and that record uh, got us a record deal. Didn't take off. Everybody downtown liked it. Got us a record deal, never hit the radio. And we did uh, the whole album, and there was one song called In the Flesh that was a take on the girl groups. And it was a very lilting ballad, and that record was picked up accidentally in Australia, and the single was In the Sun, backed with In the Flesh. And we wanted In the Sun played, but he played <laughs> the played flip the side. And the B-side went to number one in Australia. <laughs> Just freaky. So we went from playing CB stage to big theaters in Australia without even knowing how to step on a stage that big. I mean, it was really, and some people were just like, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> they were expecting, you know, maybe in, you know, a, an, another girl group, but no, we came out and we, da, 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 you know, and that was not too well received. So by the time we got to England and England being a trend setting country, they had listened to some other songs on that first album. And uh, Larry Utah, the president of Private Stock Records, the little label we were on, said, yeah, let's make another record with them. And we made a second record called uh, Par uh, Plastic Letters. And Plastic Letters was much darker and deeper, and it hit somebody square in the head. Terry Ellis of Chrysalis Records heard some of that album, came to see us, and signed us on the spot. He gave us the money to buy out of our other contract, and he signed us on the spot because, you know, the second record was dark and edgy, and he's the guy who had Jethro Tull and Procol Harum and... Right, know, so Ian Anderson and those guys. Yes, and, yeah. which were, you know, pulled back into some sort of darkness, you know, and... We, whether it was Ian and Long and Greater uh, right. Shade of Pale. Yeah. Well, but even beyond that, I mean, right. Gary Brooker, amazing songwriter, you know. Uh, I, just, I saw him open for Jethro Tull, actually. Yeah. yeah. He, I think they were better, actually. <laughs> but um, so that just, uh, you know, we, we went out with Denis Denis, which was the second single off the second album. And that became number one in England, then Germany then France, then to their own chagrin, Australia. <laughs> and we came back home and the opposite happened. We were just a band in a bar because nobody in America. What a big change from playing large stadiums. You, and, well, you know, no, it wasn't theaters, stadiums, theaters. Yeah, theaters. Uh, and uh, it took a change of producers uh, because we just wanted to go straight pop. And really, I'm not saying my art brought me there. No, it's we wanted to be successful. So uh, we got Mike Chapman, who had written 41 number one singles. And he, he said we are the only band that he didn't write for. And we had Parallel Alliance, and we had One Way or Another, and then we had Heart of Glass. And 
everything blew up, just blew up. And we had a very, very successful career for two years. And I think the strain of it, you know, it was more fun throwing dollars into a pot in the loft than it was saying, whose publishing is this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I get 13% of this song or, you know. Right. It, it just became ridiculous. And we took a hiatus. And as Craig said, we never broke up. It's just like, should we do it this year? No, no. Because the royalties were spoiling us. And we were just, we didn't have to see each other. We didn't want to because of the 13% on this song. And, you know, like the middle eight of one way or another, I brought that song in. Nigel wrote it. I wrote the middle eight. And he had a big argument with me about, no, no, it's my song, man. So I just went, take it, you know. And then the song became huge, became in every commercial. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't speak to each other for five years. And then uh, we got back together. And it just became a nightmare. When we reunited in uh, after 16 years in 1997, we decided we talked for a while. Then we decided to go in the studio. In '98, we had Maria and went number one around the world. It was the first band to come back and have a hit of that whole ilk of bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had two other number ones in England and Europe. And we came back home and we were fighting again. <laughs> Because it was, again, you know, Jimmy wrote the three number ones. Jimmy is not sharing his money. Sharing his money. I mean, you know, I didn't take a bit of Heart of Glass, which I basically put together. So without, you know, throwing stones, it just became, and we were all guilty of this. It just became ridiculous trying to exist in a band that, you know, was getting avaristic to the nth degree. And... uh at 2006, they didn't tour in 2004. I did my last tour in 2004. They didn't tour in 2005. 2006, we were um, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was asked by my wife, can you go back to them? And I said, I really can't, honey. I really can't do that. You know, I think I reached the pinnacle of my career with this statue. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, I know two things. Uh, I know music and I know addiction because I've I've had a little bout of it myself and I had a lot of friends die. A lot of close friends die. I'd like to study that. And I went back to college and I got a degree as a therapist. And I specialized in alcohol and drugs and I started working privately and then in a facility, Seabrook House, which is wonderful. And then I started to realize how much of a business that is, you know, and that mm-hmm. whole AA keep on coming back thing means keep on going to treatment. Your insurance is going to pay for it. It's okay. You have a disease for the rest of your life. That's all a sham. So I, I got really disgusted with that and I started playing music again and I literally didn't play. I had to actually warm up my hands. Uh I started playing music again because it was burning in me. So um, about last year, I, I've been looking for bands to produce, and I found an amazing band called Satellite Mode. We're going to start working in late May, and I'm 
just getting back into it. And my little trip down here to Moogfest was sort of to introduce myself again. You know. uh, next year, I'm going to play here. And uh, that's about it up to date. Let me ask you, I mean, y- yesterday when we were talking, when I was listening to you and Craig, you were talking a little bit about the different instruments that you've used over time. And one of the things that we talk about on this podcast is the intersection between art and technology. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously very early on, these things were analog instruments. Uh, you, you might have a click track, but there was no synchronization between any of these things. Yeah. How has all of this changed? It's changed for me because I come from a different direction. I had to learn to play an instrument. Today, you could have an Apple laptop and literally download instruments and parts and sequences. And, well, you could do that before the Apple laptop, but it makes it so much easier. In Pro Tools, you could have a studio in your, you know, your spare room or in your own bedroom. A lot of kids have that, you know. The good thing about it is it brought music to the masses. I mean, if you could afford a laptop, which even if you're poor, a lot of people save up to get and become DJs and whatever and find their way out of the street with that. Um, The other thing about it is the possibilities are endless. Like, you see all those mugs out there. There are patches for them in in Pro Tools and in any kind of Apple download. So uh, I love Apple. I think it's a great company. Uh, and they make music available to everybody. On the other hand, did you notice yesterday when we were doing the uh, the conversation with Craig? I said, there must be musicians here. And then, Anybody a musician? And two people put their hands up. Mm-hmm. The rest of them are either aficionados, fans, I hope, and <laughs> either that or people working on laptops. So that's where it's gone. I don't mind that. I hope I wasn't too long-winded. No, no, I, I asked for that. Right. The, uh, you know, there's there's all of these attempts to bring these traditional instruments together with the, with with the laptops. You know, there's been uh, in GarageBand for a long time. There were lessons where mm-hmm. you could you could learn to play guitar, mm-hmm. and that didn't really catch on very far. It's one of those things where people thought it was a good idea because they could take they could just skip that and go right to a sequence they could pick up and use. Or write to a, a guitar part that they could sample and, you know, so who wants to sit in front of a mirror checking your fingering mm-hmm. and then go into a teacher twice a week? Nobody wants to do that anymore. You know, I taught myself how to play piano. My sister got all the lessons, you know, and I wasn't, I was playing stickball. And finally I said, hmm, you know, let me try this out. You know, I've always wanted to be a musician because I come from the Beatles age, you know. Uh, today, anybody can make a record. Anybody. And I don't mind that at all because, geez, look at look at uh, the Beastie Boys. I mean, they're brilliant. Well, they started as a punk band. Yeah, but they were horrible as a punk band. They were. They were really, really bad. But they had a vision, and they strove for it. The guitar playing is god-awful, but with their vocals, it works perfectly. I mean, they were really exciting to see live. They were, their records were exciting. Uh, even Beck, you know, mm-hmm. he, he even said it himself, two turntables and a, a microphone, microphone, you know, <laughs> and one riff. Dun, dun, dun. Brilliant song. Yeah. Brilliant song. But um, – it's not as if Beck is rehearsing musicians every day and getting the set tight. 
whatever he needs to go for, he'll do on a computer or use live stuff. And so it's he, it, and those are older examples. There's more out there that are countless, and you know, don't even know. What do you think about how publishing and distribution has changed? Mm, through iTunes and yeah, uh, I like iTunes because iTunes is direct payer and Apple really watches that. Uh, when I had uh, royalties coming into me from this subdivision label of Chrysalis and this label and that label and this publishing entity and you know, you had to audit and you had to make, stay on your toes and make sure you got your money. And sometimes you would lose some money and you have to say, well, the legal fees to collect this money would be more than the money itself. And you'd have to let it go. But iTunes pays less, but pays everything. Every place there's a download, iTunes will, will pay. You know, I think it's 68 cents to the dollar, but hey, I, I'm not sure if that figure is right. But my royalties is, have actually gone up. From mechan not mechanicals, but from uh, downloads. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a new thing. It's it's a you know uh, we were dead. We were sort of broke after the first turnaround because you know we all thought we were going to last forever, and we all bought these lavish homes and stuff like that. Then CDs came out and gave us a second wind. You know, we paid bills and we started living normally again. You know, and uh, then iTunes. And that really covered our asses, to be, you know, pretty blunt. Currently, there's there's a fight between Spotify and Apple going on where Spotify is is upset with Apple. Uh, their their complaint is around having to pay Apple part of their subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And they're upset about uh, not being able to sell those subscriptions through the App Store without Apple taking a cut. It's sort of one of the things that we're watching and thinking about is is what's the right way, you know, what's the right way to distribute, what's the right way to consume? Is it Apple it's Music? Much of a cut. It's not much of a cut, though, isn't it? Uh, for I mean, apps you, that are sold, it's like a 30% of the sale price of the app, and for a subscription, it's something like 15%. Yeah. Well, you're using a giant. Yeah. You're using a giant to get it done. And for someone who used the beautiful blonde to get it done, any means to an end. I mean, I don't think they should be fighting. I think Spotify would do a lot better to team up with Apple and negotiate. You know, because you are you're using a you're using the most uh, the richest company in the world, who hasn't that company really doesn't uh, mess with your content, doesn't do any, with with all the iPhones and everything. They're not Facebook, and they're not. You know, Instagram, and they're not, you, you trust Apple. And Tim Cook said it himself, you know, uh, you know, we're the biggest company in the world, but we don't know what our users, where they are, you know. Mm. And that's wonderful. I mean, uh, if you're going to use a giant, you have to pay for it, you know. You mentioned fa Facebook, who, who own Instagram. Mm -hmm. What do you think they have as a responsibility to their users? Absolute privacy. And it's responsibility to uh, knock off the ads, the real fake news ads. Uh, they have to start really respecting your privacy, not sell your information. I mean, in the early days of Facebook, we would talk about things uh, with people, with friends, not just me. I mean, everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, people who talk about bicycles a lot would start getting ads for bicycles. 
you know, and, and that kind of thing. It's an invasion, and and I don't trust Zuckerberg. I know he's a little bit on the spectrum, but his spectrum isn't focused on coding anymore. It's focused on more, just more, you know. And he was a real dickhead in Washington. Uh, it's just so their responsibility has to be more privacy because he's got. I actually have a question. <laughs> yeah, it's sure, me. Scout. Okay, so do you think that if people paid for Facebook, they would get their privacy? Good question. 13 years old. <laughs> Great question. Uh, yes. I think if they paid for Facebook, if, it, if they paid a nominal fee, they would get a guarantee. And they would have to. They would demand it. You know, I wouldn't pay for any service where I didn't read the service agreement. And <laughs> I don't think they'd mess with that because if, say, just 400,000 of the 9 billion people that are on Facebook... Uh, sued them, it would be national, international news. For example, like it's international news now that they don't protect your privacy. You know, yeah. Every repeated incident that they have, we talk about it here. Right yeah. now, they're saving up a, a war chest in preparation for paying a fee to the uh, FTC. Mm -hmm. I think because they're violating their consent degree from the last time. Yeah. Yeah, from before, from after Zuckerberg was on the Hill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they don't change. You, you can't really write off three billion dollars as a as a business expense. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a cost of doing business anymore. It's uh, a way of. <laughs> I know, cost of doing business. That that was hilarious. Yeah, well, I I do think we have to watch out. I think the people understand now, and thank you, news agencies, for getting this out. Like all the other stuff they've been getting out. Yeah. It really gave me a, res a high, high, high respect for journalism again. You know, I mean, unfortunately, people are so ensconced in their, like cement, or like cement boots in their opinions that, you know, uh, two reporters can't bring down a president like they did in the Nixon era. Yeah. Only wish they could. And this is one of the things that, that uh, Apple News has been trying to do is vet articles mm -hmm. and push the ones that are verifiable to the top. Mm -hmm. What do you do with the ones that aren't? That's a good question. They, they're they also beginning to charge money for the news so that you can uh, make sure that, that outlets have some form of getting paid the same way that iTunes is paying artists and maybe mm -hmm. paying less, but at least paying directly. It's paying directly, yeah, yeah. which turns out to be more. That's the, that's the great thing about it. You're buying a service from iTunes. We guarantee your royalty because it's all digitally encoded. <laughs> One of the things that makes news agencies suspect of, of Apple News mm -hmm. and participating is that, like you said, Apple protects privacy. Apple doesn't want to give the subscriber information to those news outlets, and they're right. so used to having that, yeah. that, yeah. that it makes them skeptical. Mm -hmm. When so, they don't. So Tim Cook and the gang are sort of backing away. And maybe they're thinking that they don't need the news agencies. Maybe uh, they, they're thinking that they could become the next CNN. Well, I don't. I, they're producing dramas. They're producing fictional works. Yeah, for, content for, for Apple, Apple TV. TV. Yeah. Um, I don't know that they're producing any news programs at the time, at this time, although some are documentary. Mm-hmm. With uh, with Apple News and Apple News Plus, what they're doing is they've gotten Wall Street Journal on board. Mm -hmm. 
and I think their their plan is that more will follow. Yeah, good, good for them. You know, uh, I think they're a benevol- uh, benevolent company. I I don't think they're very much into all the nasty stuff. They, they're very much a hardware and content company, it, or they're going to be a content company, hardware, software, and some content. And it's Apple. And great phones, you know, it's, it's Galaxy makes great phones. They make great phones, and they're always one-upping each, each other, which mm-hmm. is good for the people. It's good for people buying phones. I mean, uh, I never had – God, wish I invested in Apple. <laughs> I mean, I never had a bad experience with that company personally, and I know a lot of people swear by it. And and that's all you need. I, walk, I A lot of people out there walking around grumbling about Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people out there walking around grumbling about Volkswagen, you know. Sure. (laughs) And these are huge companies. Never really get it with Apple. Uh, I get some jealousy because they're the richest company in the world, but everybody's got one in their pocket. Yeah. So, of course. (laughs) Of course. I mean, all right. uh, Who's going to be the competitor to them? They have such an infrastructure. You know, if he gets out of hand, if it ever gets out of hand, I trust that something will be done. They've opened up so many different fronts, right? They've got the TV Plus that sort of fits as a competitor to not not as much cable or HBO as much as uh, because HBO is, is a part of their agreements currently anyway, but more uh, Netflix. Mm-hmm. Competing with other streaming well, that's services. A, that's Disney, for example, yeah. Disney's Plus streaming service right. that's come out right. is one they're going to compete with. Um, when it comes to computers, obviously we know who they compete with. Their phones, like you said, Samsung. But there, we, we keep hearing rumblings about them building their own car. So they're they're competing <laughs> with Tesla. <laughs> I don't know. You know, that's a whole other ball of wax. They they have around seventy vehicles in California that are self driving, licensed for self driving. Mm-hmm. Technology is there, but you trust somebody. To drive a self-driving car, I mean, <laughs> it, 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 nobody could react like a human. Well, the, the, it, it's a ways off, but when a vehicle can react like a human, the, the possibility or the potential for, for drastically reducing car accidents mm-hmm. seems like a win. Sometimes the logical turn is the wrong one. Yeah. You know, my, my concern is the knock-on effects of that. If, if you reduce car accidents to you know, 1% of what they are today. That would be wonderful. Yeah, then I'll be all for it. But I just, I'm just itchy about it. Except, oh. except that, you know, when you do that, where you, you think about all the knock-on effects, right? What comes after that? Well, a result of that, if you reduce all of the car accidents in, in the country, you also reduce all of the organ donation in the country. Yeah, of course. So... And you reduce the employment of firefighters and whatever. And yeah, long-haul truck, truck drivers, drivers and, and... Yeah. Yeah. All of that. So there's a ton of changes going. So, but like, if we, we know that we Apple's might be doing something with self-driving cars, you would kind of assume that Tim Cook has one because at every Apple conference when they're announcing a new phone, he always has it. Says, "I use this." Like when the Apple Watch came out, I have this. That was kind of cool. So you can kind of assume that he has a self-driving I, car. I I think it's a little early for that. I think that's probably. Uh, a, a few years away they're still doing the research kind of work but you're right when when it comes he'll have one well 
there a couple of years ago before the Apple Watch Series 4 came out, he was talking about having the ability to uh, to real time scan the glucose in his bloodstream. In his bloodstream. And that was something that then came, you know, was announced six months later as, as a partnership that they'd done with one of the glucosimeter companies. Well, that's all wonderful stuff. I got to say, though, uh, Tim Cook probably arrives in a limousine. Yeah. <laughs> At this point. He's a public figure. Uh, and uh, he's a very powerful man. <laughs> I would say. I, I suspect he no longer drives himself. Yes. <laughs> Uh, although, although Steve Jobs drove himself around up until the the days where he got too sick to drive anymore, he drove himself and parked wherever the hell he wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, and he had a car without plates on it for like six months. There was a rule <laughs> in California that allowed him, as long as the car was was uh, purchased or or at least six months before, you could go for six months without a plate. And so he just changed cars every six months. <laughs> Uh, and I, I was at Apple one day visiting some of the uh, the hardware evangelists and people there, and his his Mercedes was parked in tilted. the handicapped spot at right. an angle. At an yes. angle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I went to high school with Jimmy Iovine, and I know him forever. And uh, he's told me some Steve Jobs stories that make your hair stand on end as far as his behavior. But we got it. We got to hand it to the guy. <laughs> uh, you know, he was a human, right? He was human. He, he was very human. And he was very fraught with, you know, um, his own peccadillos, his own uh, dis dissociative whatever disorder he had. <laughs> uh, God, he was just a misanthrope. But he gave us so much. Mm -hmm. He really did. He gave us so much. You know, one of the things that I there, – there are a lot of people out there who have tried to figure out what lessons to take away from him. And the one that I keep coming back for is is advocating for the consumer, advocating for the end user. Mm, yes, yes, absolutely, having the consumer in mind. When he – in that scene in, his, in the Steve Jobs movie, hmm. uh, when Michael Fassbinder says to uh, Lisa, the, the actress playing Lisa, I'm going to put – a thousand songs in your pocket. That's not thinking about himself. That's thinking about people walking around wanting music. And yeah, of course it's going to sell because it's good for them. You know? His, and, and he did have at Apple when he was alive, that it is true, he did have a big poster of Alan Turing. And he went way back beyond, you know, uh, IBM and everything and, and, uh, the big one they had at NASA, whatever they call it, to the invention of the thinking that led to the computer in, in Fensley Park or Finchley Park with Alan Turing. And, well, you know, it's Jobs, Jobs was an incredible individual. I read that uh, bio of him by Isaacson, Walter Isaacson. Mm -hmm. Great bio. Yeah. Great bio. You know, it's, it's so... Good that you were able to talk to Jimmy Iovine about things like this, because a number of people said that when they read the Isaacson book, the people who knew Jobs, that they didn't really feel like it captured him the way they knew him. I yeah. feel like each person around him had a different experience. Iovine said him. he was really funny, quick, sharp humor, you know, even though it was nasty, mm -hmm. 
You know, like that's a good idea. Go start your own company. <laughs> but, but like that was a bad example. But sure. it just his day to day. He was he was funny. You know, he was nasty as hell, but he was also funny. And I guess Jimmy got a buffered down version of Steve because Jimmy was a mogul himself. Mm-hmm. You know, Jimmy and Interscope Records and everything he's done. You know, and he helped develop iTunes with Steve Jobs. So. There you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for making so much time for me. No, no problem, Victor. Enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I want to thank WUNC for being so kind and letting us use their studios. Yes, thank you so much on a Saturday afternoon.